Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. We have two texts this evening uh, in our Advent series. As you know, hopefully we're using the lectionary, which is a collection of four pre-assigned passages that correspond with the season that we are in in the church calendar, that being Advent. We're going to look at two passages. One is the Old Testament passage, and then one is the passage from the Gospels. The first reading is from Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. In this reading from the book of Luke, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of God for the people of God. So one of the surprising figures in the season of Advent is John the Baptist. And I don't mean the infant John the Baptist. I mean the adult version of John the Baptist. The six pound, eight ounce, little tiny infant baby John the Baptist would make some sense if we were studying him in this context because his birth story intersects with the birth story of Jesus. But again, the lectionary, it devotes not one, but two consecutive weeks to the retelling of John's story as an adult. 
And when we follow this guide for preaching, we are led away from the manger, away from the familiar comforts and characters of the nativity and into a landscape of wilderness and waste some 30 years later in the story. And it's here on this strange soil that we are confronted with the ravings of a slightly unhinged but divinely called prophet. Now, if you've spent any amount of time with us over the last few weeks as we've been unpacking um, this sermon series on the fourth gospel, the spiritual gospel, the gospel according to John, no doubt you've already heard some teachings on John the Baptist. We've devoted at least two weeks to him already. So I feel that some of this is going to be um, a bit of review. The Baptist's role, as we now know, was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Indeed, it was prophesied of him before he was born that with the spirit and power of Elijah, and this was important because in this moment, some people were anticipating uh, Elijah reborn almost, which is why some people, when they come to John, they say, are you in fact Elijah? But it says with the spirit and power of Elijah, that great Old Testament prophet, John will go before Jesus to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. It continues to say that he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. On its own, this prophecy is worthy of our careful consideration, but the odd circumstances that surround John's birth, it significantly increases the poignancy of this story. His parents were told in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, they're old, they're childless. It doesn't seem like a baby is in the cards for them. In this context, we also have to understand that devoid of the medical advances that we now have, barrenness was a mark of shame that was most often attributed to or carried by the woman. Zachariah was not impotent. Zachariah was not sterile. Elizabeth was barren. And I would imagine that she had been wearing that perceived failure for years. To be married in the ancient Near East or the first century Jewish context, in this moment, the job of the woman would have been to procreate, to carry on the line of her husband, and to not be able to do that would be a mark of shame. It's untold in the gospel, so I don't really wanna read into it too much, but you'd have to think that at the very least, it's highly likely that both Zachariah and Elizabeth and their failure to conceive affected their relationship with each other. And it also probably affected their relationship with God. Now, I don't wanna consign to this couple any sort of bitterness that was not them. When some people have adverse situations, they can double down and they can, they can draw closer to one another. Their prayer life might go through the roof. They can learn a new way to trust God with all of their issues. But think of the years of unanswered prayers. Think of the years of societal shame Think of the years of watching everyone you know around you celebrate the birth of a child. Think of the one-year birthday party at Coco's in the ancient Jewish context. 
and you being invited because you're part of the community and you wearing the shame of not having your own child to throw an extravagant birthday party at Coco's for. Kate and I have one on the docket coming up. It is at Coco's and it's after hours Coco's where the parents have been encouraged to BYOB at Coco's, which I think is the only way that it could be managed at Coco's. <laughs> think of the years of loneliness and sadness, the years of questioning their own bodies. I would imagine that this all crept in to both Zachariah and Elizabeth's psyche to some degree. Now, barrenness is a familiar motif in the Bible. Stories of barren women who, despite being advanced in age, that miraculously get pregnant after years and years of nothing is also a familiar motif in the Bible. You can think of Sarah and Abraham, Rachel and Jacob. You can think of Samson's parents. You can think of Hannah and Elkanah. So when Zechariah is told that Elizabeth would become pregnant, he responds in a perfectly logical way. What? I'm old, she's old, that's not how it works. It would have happened by now. We tried, we failed, we moved on, we adjusted. But the messenger Gabriel who has shown up to Zechariah while he is doing his priestly duties says that there is something else in the cards for them. There's going to be more to your story, old man Zechariah. Now, as I was thinking about this, here's an odd detail that doesn't get mentioned much in the pulpit, and I'll let you be the arbiters of whether or not it should ever be. But because Zechariah did not believe the messenger, and for pretty good reason, I might add, Gabriel said that Zechariah would be unable to speak until Elizabeth gave birth to her son. That much is well known, but here's what pastors don't pontificate on. Not only did Zechariah encounter a divine messenger with a decidedly improbable message, and not only was he rendered unable to speak because he had no faith that it would come to pass, but think about this, he had to romance his wife without using any words when he got home. Old Zachariah's got game. And we don't talk about that enough. Now you might say, well, we learned from Luke chapter three that he can write words down because when she had the baby and they wanted to name him after Zachariah, he said, no, his name will be John. And he wrote that down. So Zachariah at least is literate. But think about that for a second. What does the note that he's writing to Elizabeth say? An angel of the Lord told me to sleep with you. Honey, how many times has that ever worked in the history of humanity? I submit to you, zero. It doesn't work that way. Old man Zachariah's got game. However he arranged it, whether it was the eyebrows and the head nod or whether it was a, a note of some suggestive qualities, however he arranged it, Elizabeth does eventually get pregnant. And when baby John shows up, the messenger's words begin to take even more root in Zachariah's life. 
His, his lips were loosened and he proclaims this from Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 68. It says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Dropping down to the, to the, the note about his son in particular, it says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. These words are reminiscent of Old Testament prophecies that laid out a messenger or a forebearer to come before the Messiah would show up. Again, going back to Malachi chapter three, it says, lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. We see similar texts in Isaiah where it talks about a messenger, a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Even Jesus says of John months later or years later, perhaps, or sometime later, he says that John is fulfilling scripture because he is the one that Malachi talked about. He is the one who comes before we now know, before Jesus, the Messiah, to prepare the way of the Lord. From the very beginning of his life, it was known that John the Baptist would prepare the way for the Messiah, that he would be the voice crying out in the desert, that John would be the hype man before the headliner showed up. Again, it's inappropriate to read into this context. We don't have a lot to go on here. But as I was contemplating this passage this past week, it, it dawned on me at least that John never had to contemplate his future his dad on day one is saying, you will be a messenger for the most high God. It might be fair to say that John didn't have much of a say in it. He had been groomed for this task to be the one who would prepare the way for God's people. In our study of the Gospel of John, again, we have seen how this has played out in his life, the things that he has done. John goes out into the wilderness. He preaches a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the people who are coming to hear what he is saying. Now, it was interesting because a few weeks ago was Halloween, and this was the, and I hope I'm not stepping on any toes here, uh, our family got the kids all dressed up and we drug them around in a, in a what do you call those things that you pull? A wagon, thank you, Derek. Uh, we pulled them around in a wagon and the, the neighborhood got really into it. Our next door neighbors that put up 15 Christmas inflatable things, they also have a, a like electronic graveyard sort of simulation. They've got things coming out of the ground. They've got witches brews and stews and cauldrons and it's intense. We didn't realize that uh, since we were participating in the Halloween that we could have just put out like a bowl of candy at the end of our driveway. So it's like all of this intense stuff, darkness and nothing as we're going around ravaging the neighborhood like, oh yes, I'll take this crunch bar. Oh yes, I'll take this Reese cup. We're still eating our children's um, Halloween candy, just one piece at a time though, not a la Jimmy Kimmel. Um, but my neighbor across the street, 
He, I don't know if he has long hair. I've never really met the guy, but he at least has a beard. So when we saw him, Josh, you're looking skeptical. I will tie this together. He, he was dressed up as Jesus, and he had a sign that said, repent, and he had a Miller, Miller High Life in one hand. And when we came over, he said, yeah, man, I just think that if Jesus was around today, he would turn that water into a Miller High Life, you know? <laughs> I, 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 believe, I believe also that when he found out that I was the guy from across the street, I think he knows that I'm a pastor. He was like, oh, oh, uh, oh. And then he tried to get all proper. He's like, man, it's okay. Man, if you want to have a Miller, that's, 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 all, that's all you. But like Jesus is not the one with the repent sign like we would think about that. The way we envision this is the bullhorn on the street where the person is yelling at people going to this concert or that concert, the people that are handing out tracks and store parking lots, the repent or you're going to get it sort of preachers. And that's actually more John the Baptist than Jesus. John the Baptist was unruly. He was fiery. He was eating insects and wearing animal pelts out in the wilderness. John probably could have wielded his own bullhorn in this sort of uh, framework. But John, oddly, was also wildly successful. People were leaving their communities to come out into the wilderness to hear him teach and preach and to be baptized by him. John was building a community. He was preparing the way for Jesus by aligning the people with the impending move of God, the things that John had heard his entire life. You will be the messenger. You will be the one who prepares the way. You will be the one who builds a community, who reorients their lives to be ready for the move of God. And he was also, in this way, standing on the brink of history. He was ushering people into a new age, what Jews at the time would have referred to as the age to come. As such, John was a transitional figure. He was bringing the period of Old Testament prophecy to an end, and he was also setting the stage for Jesus to arrive and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. John was preparing the way, and all the while he was pointing people away from himself to the one who would show up, the one whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. And we're going to come back to this next week because the lectionary continues. We just read the first um, six or seven verses of chapter three in Luke's gospel. We're going to pick up uh, the next handful of verses where we actually get into the message that John is preaching. But I'm going to kind of spoil it for us and tell you that it's going to get dicey. John says things like, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance. John is the street preacher that we kind of turn our heads away from and walk around quickly if we can. John, though, is unafraid to call power to accountability. The people that he calls the brood of vipers, these were the religious leaders that were showing up to see what was going on. And John knows this and he said, what are you doing here? You guys are not ready for this. You cannot handle this. And he begins to call them out on all of their sins. And this, I think, is important for where we're gonna go tonight. And really, I just wanna make one really quick point from the text that we looked at in the first few verses of Luke's third chapter. 
it's not an obvious point. I imagine for most people, it's, it's easily glossed over, especially in your daily reading. It might've been glossed over tonight as you were hearing it. But in the first couple of verses, what we hear is, in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip was ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, I don't want to overread this passage. Luke is merely trying to place John's work in a historical framework. He's also trying to place the baptism of Jesus, which will come uh, in a few verses, in its historical context as well. He's saying these things happened at this time when this ruler was in power in this place and that ruler was in power in that place and this other ruler was in power in this place. It's a help for future readers to orient themselves to place the ministry of John and the baptism of Jesus in a specific historical moment. But maybe, maybe there's a little more to it. Maybe it's also a bit of Luke's foreshadowing of what is to come because there's one name in particular in this list of people that's meaningful, not only for the larger story of John, but for the larger gospel that Luke is knitting together, namely Herod. Herod is the one who imprisoned and eventually killed John the Baptist. The book of Mark provides a flashback to this set of circumstances. It says, for Herod had sent men who arrested John, bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. And John had been telling Herod, the one in power, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Listen, person in power, you can't do what you're trying to do John, again, was calling those in power into question. He was not allowing their sin to go unnoticed or unnamed. He was sounding an alarm, and even at the risk of his own safety, he was saying yet again, you viper. Only this time, it costs him his life. You know, there's many things that separate us from John. To my knowledge, nobody here eats insects or wears animal pelts, at least not too often. But there might be a few points of comparison that we should think about. Most notably, like John, we also stand on the brink of a new age. We too are transitional figures, so to speak. As we discovered last week, Advent is not us looking back to the birth story of Jesus. Advent is us looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus. It's oriented towards the future, which is why you get really weird stories about John the Baptist 30 years after the birth of Jesus. But as we await the culmination of the age, as we await Jesus to return and to bring about full redemption and full restoration, we are living in the midst of the tension. You guys know where I'm going, where am I going, of what scholars call the already not yet. This is where we exist. Remember that whole Jewish framework where they believed that they were living in the present age and then Messiah would break in and usher in the age to come. Well, 
what Jesus does is something of a hybrid. Through his death and his resurrection, he brings some of the age to come to bear here and now, but we don't experience all of it, which means we are living in the present age, but we experience some of the benefits of the age to come. We are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are restored, but not fully. Perhaps, in light of this placement where we look towards the future for King Jesus to return. Perhaps we too should pick up the mantle left by John and learn to call power to accountability rather than trying to co-opt it for our own gain. Perhaps our call as followers of Jesus is to take the power and the influence that we have and use it for the sake of those who have none. Perhaps we should be willing to take risks, to speak up, to risk personal and social and maybe even financial costs for the sake of those who have been marginalized or oppressed. Now for us to focus on John calling the authority figures to accountability, there's some low-hanging fruit for us tonight as followers of Jesus, and I don't want us to focus just on that. Rather, I think it would be important for us to go beyond to see how we might be able to speak on behalf of the people in this place tonight. To speak on behalf of the people in this community who have no one. To speak on behalf of the people that are in our own sphere of influence. To see the power structures that we are either propagating or living under and call them to accountability when they are living outside of God's will, God's plan, of God's best intention for human beings. Over the past few months, I've really been struggling because what I have seen is a faith that has no bearing in the real world. I've seen a faith that has been about spiritual development and inward sort of stuff and the things that we read and the things that we listen to and the the stuff that we do, it's just about us and we don't wanna make our lives uncomfortable at all. And whenever I read the New Testament and whenever I hear Jesus speaking, that is not on his agenda. It's not about the morning devotions if the morning devotions do not impel you to love your neighbor. It's not about listening to worship songs in the car if you don't take that worship and then submit under it in everything that you say and do for the rest of the day. It doesn't mean much for us to compartmentalize our allegiance to Jesus, but when we are in a situation where it might cost us something, we say, I'll get back to that later. I'm just gonna blend in now. Lest this sermon become too moralistic, lest it become too finger pointy, and trust me, friends, if I'm pointing a finger at you, I'm pointing it right at myself as well. Lest it become too much of a moralistic sermon that depends on us, I wanna end with this collection of thoughts here. I believe that John was empowered to speak the truth, even to Herod, even the one who had his very life in his hands because of his confidence in God's continued activity, because of his hope in Jesus, the one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. 
in a similar way. My hope is that we too might be empowered to speak truth, to advocate for those who need an advocate. It is my prayer and my hope that we live out our faith regardless of what it might cost us. And it is my prayer that we, like John, might point away from ourselves and point people to the hope that is available through the risen Jesus. This community, look around, small but mighty. This community can be an impetus for a faith that is not content to be focused on inward spirituality, but if we commit to living out our faith and loving those on the margins, and when you hear that, friends, you don't immediately have to go to the most extravagant version of that. There are people living on the margins right here and right now. If we have eyes to see it, and if we allow ourselves to love like Jesus loved, meaning that it might cost us something, if we allow ourselves to speak truth to power like John the Baptist, knowing that it might cost us something, the world might get a more accurate representation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Small, but mighty. I hope that my own discontentment at the things that I see and the things that I live into myself might provide fuel for all of us to turn and to align with what John was preaching, to ready ourselves for the coming of the Lord Jesus and to live in such a way that we can make those rough places smooth for the people around us because that is where hope will be found. Small but mighty. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.